everybody and welcome to podcast number 60. Today I have with me a stand-up comedian, actor, writer and cultural commentator. He was voted Best Live Club Comedian in 2016 at the UK Comedy Awards and was runner-up for 2013, 14 and 15. He won Best in Fest at the Norwich Comedy Festival in 2014 and was nominated in the 2015 Chortle Awards Best Live Club Act category. Performing in such unlikely and far-flung locations such as China, India, Norway and Vietnam, to name just a few. He's been seen on Little Howard's Big Question and BBC's Call the Midwife. He is the educated East End geezer, Jeff Innocent. Welcome, Thank Jeff. Thank you. Thank you very you. much indeed. <laughs> that, that's quite uh, an introduction. It made me realise it all seems so long ago now, doesn't it? 2014, 2016. Um, but we've had a gap. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's not bad. That's not a bad record. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me as well. Thank That's you. Okay. You're more than welcome. Pleasure to be here. Now, you were actually born in East London, so you're a true East Ender. So what made you want to get involved in drama at such an early age? Wow. Um, I think that I was one of those kids that you get that are destined to be on stage, you know, uh, a, a real pest, a real pain, uh, a show off. So from very early on, always wanted to entertain, always in the school plays. You know those sort of kids always having to have the star part in the <laughs> school plays. But, so when I was um, still at school doing school plays, I got involved. You now I must have been about 14, got involved with the Newham Youth Theatre. And at that time, it was quite progressive. You know, they were, they were doing plays by locally... Uh, local playwrights or, or Brett and, and Chekhov. Uh, and I just, just loved it so much. And I thought, wow, this, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. So I, I just got involved. I was also part of another life-changing uh, drama group, which was called the East End Abbreviated Soapbox Theatre, which was, and this is about 1970, I think. And they were a hippie commune community-based theater group that came into to the inner city to for, for, for people like me um and uh yeah i did all sorts of stuff with them so it was quite for quite a few years i was i was acting as a, as a young person and, and loved it so much i never actually went on to be an actor unfortunately or maybe fortunately as it's turned out but um i love that very much i, I will say though that um, during, um, we used to do a lot of uh, performances at the Half Moon Theatre, which was this uh, another progressive left-wing theatre in 80 Street in a in a converted, disused synagogue. And I did some stand-up when I was there. I must have been about 16. It wasn't my own material. It was stuff that was on the TV and, and, and that. And I remember being heckled. So what had happened is we'd do a play, and because I wanted to do stand-up, they gave me the interval to do 10 minutes of stand-up. And I got heckled. And I remember someone shouting out, that's sexist. And, you know, I didn't even know what that meant. You know that? I didn't even know what that meant. So I did, had done some stand-up before, though not my material. So I just loved performing, loved showing off, loved being the centre of attention. Uh, probably a bit of a handful for my mum, actually. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed those years very much. I really did. 
and you were also quite involved in music at that time. You got you took an interest. Oh uh, in yeah, music. music. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think like a lot of teenagers, you know, you get into music. It's the first thing that where you find your independence from your parents. Um, uh, although I have to say, uh, I, I did come from a musical family, not in that they played musical instruments. They were all pub singers. My family, my dad, my granddad, my uncles. It was quite a thing in those days. And I think we possibly uh, laughed at the idea of pub singing, uh, but we have karaoke now, which is very different actually, but pub singers had to be able to sing for the most part. Mm. And uh, I used to go to the pub when I was a teenager, watch them singing. So I always fancied myself as a bit of a lazy crooner in the of Perry Como. But, and actually I found a box of records from when I was at home the other day, uh, about, about a month ago when I was sorting out boxes of records, all the records that we had in our house, all the singles, hundreds of them. Uh, and it just charts my whole childhood of all the records that were coming out then, all through the 60s. Okay. So, so a musical family, but we weren't, we weren't musicians as such. Um, and then I think what happened is, when I was about 15, it was around the time of the skinhead era in the late 60s, and I really got heavily drawn towards Jamaican music. And that became my, my thing. And that's what I started DJing in and, and have done ever since, in a way. Uh, and I'm and doing so next month at the Cambridge Comedy Festival. I've got a DJ slot as well, where I'll be playing uh, 60s reggae. So I've maintained that interest and, and passion throughout. You know? That's brilliant. Because you even when you went off to university, you actually did your... Your postgrad dissertation topic was the history of Jamaican music. Yeah, I did. Um, actually, yeah, I did. I did do that, and I'm very proud of that that piece of work as well. Um, I did the history of Jamaican music, and then when I did my MA, I did. I extended that to talk about technology and dance music, so it was an extension. So yeah, not just um, a passion uh, for the music, but also a bit of uh, academic fondness for it as well so tell me because I know I know I mean it wasn't your first job you didn't go immediately into acting but your tell me about your first job because that actually helped finance you then through your university didn't it yeah I well I left school I didn't take any O levels or anything like that I I wasn't very good at school wasn't very academic I was too busy showing off and wanting to do drama I think um so I left school before taking O levels and during my late teens, I had a, a Saturday job in a, in a men's fashion shop. And I extended that and I became a window dresser. In Because at that time, jobs that you were expected to do as a working class bloke were trades. And I, one of my, you know, I'm sure a lot of dad's catchphrases at that time is you've got to get yourself a trade, son. You've got to get yourself a trade. And that would have been bricklaying or, or being an electrician or pr- plumber which I wish I had done now, actually, because I, I would have had more money probably now. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't do, I didn't, I just wanted to do something a bit arty. And the window dressers used to come in every now and again when I was working and doing the windows and thought, that looks like a really cool job. It's, it's, because I was good at art at school, you know. And, um, and so I just went into that as an apprenticeship and spent the next 15 years really doing that but it was very, it was almost like being in show business, working in King, the King's Road, Carnaby Street, Oxford Street, fashion. It was a fantastic job and I enjoyed that very much. 
but in the evenings I used to do DJing as well. So so yeah, that, that you're right to make that connection. That's that's right. Yeah. Brilliant. So from that, which you were have it had a decent career doing window dressing. I mean, they get paid a lot of money nowadays. They didn't then. But well, how did you move from there to comedy? Well, what happened is with window dressing. I think people, I don't want to bore people with window dressing. <laughs> I think there's a misconception about window dressing in that it's all department stores and it's all very gay and very flamboyant and artistic. But there's also a, a tradesman type aspect to window dressing as well, which is about building stuff and decorating stuff. So, and it was becoming outmoded by the, by the mid 80s. Um, I don't know if you remember Benetton, that whole European oh, yeah. look was coming into fashion and they got rid of windows actually. And it became about interior merchandising where you'd go in and there'd be piles of knitwear and you could touch it and, and feel it and pick it up. Um, so I think I saw that, that that was coming to an end as a, as a trade or a skill. And I'd always been, I'd always, regretted not really doing A-levels and going to university. I always had a problem with that. I was very, I was quite bookish, but always wanted to go to university. So I took myself out of work, dropped out of work when I was in my early thirties and became a mature student and went to the University of East London and studied cultural studies for three years, which just turned my life around amazingly fundamentally and one of the best things I'd ever done. Uh, and then I loved it so much. But I was working as well, of course, then, still window dressing and working in fashion and DJing. And uh, then I did the MA because I just thought, I don't want to leave university. This is a fantastic place to be. And so then I did the MA as well. I actually did some part-time lecturing while I was doing the MA. So became a little bit of a, an academic during that period. Um, uh, and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's what happened. I'm talking, this is uh, late 80s, early 90s by the time I was doing the, the MA. And uh, still up to that point, hadn't considered being a stand-up comedian. You know, I thought I was going to be a lecturer. That's why I had that idea. Although I have to say, when I was about 14 or 15, and did become, you know, when I did become a window dresser, what I actually wanted to do, apart from acting, was to be a greyhound trainer. Because I also worked part time in a greyhound racing kennels, and I thought, "Wow, this is that was the first job I ever wanted to do be a greyhound trainer." Which sounds so archaic now, doesn't it? I don't even know if there are uh, greyhound racing tracks anymore. But I had that whole fantasy tweed jackets and, and dogs and and all of that, and I still love that as well. I still maintained that interest. I wonder if you do, you know, when you're fourteen and fifteen, you're so clever and bright. Uh, uh, that you maintain those interests that you establish in your in your early teens. I certainly have anyone. Yeah, I think I think you got something there actually. Um, so so how when did when was your first comedy gig after you were doing your bits at the child? When after you'd finished uni, where was your first proper gig? Uh, well, my first, I did a workshop first of all with the the great Tony Allen. I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Allen. He's he's um, <coughs> excuse me. He still teaches. He's getting on a bit now, um, but he still runs some workshops and, and teaches comedy. But I did a workshop. Somebody bought me a workshop for my 40th birthday. That's what happened. Uh, a friend, and it was in Stratford. I can't remember exactly the name of the venue. It was like a community. It's now uh, an African church. 
uh, which makes me smile, but every time I go past it. But that's where I did my first ever stand-up gig, which would have been, well, that was, uh, if I'm, uh, I would, 90, 95, 96, I think that would have been. And I, I think I was the only person in the workshop that actually wanted to be a comedian. Because by then, as I was doing the workshop, I thought, wow, you, I'd fancied doing comedy and thought I could do comedy and been to a couple of clubs and actually thought, I think I can do that or better than that. But I didn't pursue it because I had children and it didn't look like a career. After college, I thought, I've got to earn some money. But then what happened is Jongas started opening up a big chain of clubs and it became, became a widespread and I could see that I could earn a living. So by the time I finished the workshop... Um, yeah, so the, the workshop showcase was my first ever gig. And I have, you know, I have to tell you this, I, my big fear was always remembering my stuff. Uh, I think I still hold that fear now, particularly after the, 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 the big break that we've had. And I had my girlfriend at that time sitting in front holding flashcards uh, of topics. So I'd be talking and then I'd forget and I'd look down and she'd hold up the flashcard, whatever the topic was, was coming up next. And no one saw that. It was a bit slippery. It was very slippery. So I've still got that on VHS, that that uh, I've got the video of that performance. And I pull it out every now and again just to... Well, I come down very hard on new acts sometimes. I do some workshops myself. But sometimes I have to go back to look at how I was when I first started. Just, it, I mean, the, the material is terrible, but there's a certain freedom... There's a certain rawness that I liked about when you first start that you lose, and then I think you spend years trying to get back. Uh, yeah. So, so mid mid nineties was when I started doing it, and then started doing open spots. You know, brilliant. Then move from there, and you've been in the midwife as well. The, oh yeah, called the midwife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was good. My mum was very pleased about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've done. Yeah, acting, I, I, yeah, it gave me an opportunity to get back into acting, which was the thing I wanted to do, as I said, from, from when I was younger. Um, I don't know if I'm really a good actor. Most of the small parts I've had have just been me playing versions of me, sort of <laughs> East End geezer. That's what I usually get. I never get asked to, to be a poet or, <laughs> or something different. It's always... So they haven't been very difficult and always very small parts as well. But great experience. I love, you know, great work doing acting on the telly for the BBC. It's such a great experience. The, the days you spend on set, the people you meet. And of course, what's funny is, I don't know if people know this, but as soon as you have lines uh, and you're an actor in a, in a movie or a TV programme, you are now part of the cast. You're not an extra as such. So... Whenever you break for lunch or tea, unless you go into your own caravan, which you get, you only have to have half a dozen lines, you get your own caravan. <laughs> um, but sometimes you there's a break and you have the break with the other actors. And of course, you're often in things with very famous people. But you, you can't mention that. You can't say, oh, well, it's you, because <laughs> you're on a level with them. Okay. And uh, so that's always funny. So I remember texting people and saying, I'm having lunch with Jenny Agata, things like that. <laughs> To my friends, you know, obviously they're all texting back saying, get her to do the shower scene from American Werewolf in London. 
And, and what's also funny about that, of course, is the the the, the gap between you and the, in them. And I remember she was. Uh, I don't think this is uh, uh, libelous, but she was she was making a phone call, and I was making a phone call to my wife about paying the rent or getting the shopping in or walking the dog, and she was talking to a dress designer about what outfit they're going to be making her for the proms where she's been doing some, some performance. Wow, we're in the same room on the same project, but our worlds are still very Miles different. Apart. So, Graham, is there anything that you'd like to ask her? Yeah, Jeff, um, if there was going to be a film about you, who would you want playing you? Ah, ah. Oh, dear. I've never, oh, oh, I, don't, I haven't got an answer ready for this. Uh, I hadn't really thought about about that oh i don't i don't know um well i haven't got anyone in mind actually <laughs> i'm so oh. uh, have you got any ideas who you i mean can you give me a list to choose from have you considered that oh i haven't considered the list actually but i'm i'm just thinking i think orlando bloom i think actually who orlando bloom yeah he's he's a he's a bit effeminate though isn't he orlando he's when i say effeminate i mean he's he's a bit sort of Slim and wiry, isn't he? Orlando. Oh, he is slim and wiry. He's a bit Actually, too good looking to play me. Come on. <laughs> oh, yes. <he is. laughs> That's I, ridiculous. I tell you, it's the actor, uh, Tom, not Tom Moore. There's the Tom Hardy. Tom, Tom Hardy, Hardy, yeah. Tom Hardy. That's you a good one. Yeah, you can have that. Yeah. I think Tom Hardy would really do the scene. He can play did, anything. He would. Yeah, he would, yeah, he would I didn't actually it? watch the the uh, the uh, Peaky Blinders <laughs> program, but I watched oh. the clips on. One of the only things I've watched just clips of, and yeah. his performance in that is absolutely astounding, isn't it? Uh, uh, it, it is. Yeah. The, the Peaky Blinders crew are, are, are highly... Yeah. It's either that or Ray Winstone, but it had to, it had to, had to, it had to somehow well, go back about 30 years. Well, it's interesting years. you choose Ray Winstone because I, the person I've always wanted to play as an actor is the character from Great Expectations, which is Magwitch. And I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with, with Magwitch, but he's... Uh, and uh, I've always wanted to play Magwitch. As I get older and older, I'm looking more like I could play Magwitch. But Ray Winston <laughs> beat me to the punch. He, he did a version of Great Expectations as well. Oh, I but Tom Hardy, yeah, I like that. I'm going to go Tom, with that. But Tom Hardy we stick with. Now, obviously, you're a very, very mischievous character. Okay, we can, we can see that through just talking to you. But does that, is that, do you use that in your comedy from your character and your persona, or do you approach it from how it's going to come across? Um, I think that when I, for many years, I think I used it to a fault, and it wasn't actually me. I think a lot of stand-up comedians, some never stop doing that. It's not really them. You find a persona that works, um, and that whole East End geezer, criminal association type done a bit of boxing persona which is not which is not a, a lie but it's just part of who mm. I am mm. and I think I used that for many years as part of my comedy but in the end I mean that worked very well during the genres years you know when, yeah. it, when it was quite a rough tough medium to be involved in stand-up comedy um, and I think what happened is maybe after about 10 or 15 years I started to talk take on other topics that were also my truth if you like and i found that i become a much better comedian for doing that so i have used it now i think it's i think the difference is 
that now it's implicit rather than explicit. You know, I think uh, about talking about other things, you would into what kind of person you are maybe or what kind of background you have, what your backstory is, rather than spelling it out. And I think that, that makes for better stand-up comedy and gives me a wider choice of topics. Now, now Jeff, obviously because you have such, you know, a varied history, do, do you um, improvise ever or do you stick to the script when you're performing? Um, I largely stick to a script, but I have, um, I do improvise in part, um, but I am very, I'm very big on the difference between acting and stand-up comedy. And part of the problems, if you are a scripted comedian, which most of us are, mm-hmm. is that when you go to do a gig, what makes you different from an actor if you're merely, if you're merely performing the lines from your script? And the big difference between stand-up comedy and acting is breaking the fourth wall. And I don't know how much you know about this, but the, the idea. So, so really, it's about, for me, it's even if I'm taking the same script, it's, I'm performing it in a different place, in a different context, in a different moment, to a different audience. So in order for me to be in the moment, which I think is the way of breaking the fourth wall, uh, I might have a body of material, but it doesn't have necessarily have uh, uh, an order you know so I might throw it all up in the air see how it feels at the time I might emphasize one routine over another because of the type of club or the type of audience so it's 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 written work but there's uh, I like to be in the moment and in the room with that written work Uh, thank you very much that Jeff oh yes yes we'll pass you back to Elaine Thank you. Brilliant. So what plans do you actually have for the future? Plans for the future? Well, uh, to still keep progressing with stand-up comedy and I'm still not doing it exactly the way I'd like to be doing it. So I don't want to sound pretentious, but it's still a, it's still a work in progress, my act. Brilliant. Still not quite there. Um, although I've been quite pleased recently because I, I had a a couple of viral videos. And for the first time in over 20 years, I thought, oh, yeah, that video represents me. Often when you do TV, uh, uh, you know, oh, that's not good, that's not me, or it wasn't a good gig. But so progressing with the comedy, trying to get better. And I've also just started my own podcast, which is called Smart Casual. And we're, we're starting to uh, record episodes. It's not out yet, but um, just let your listeners know they want to hear more of me and my guests and how I uh, interview people, how I interrogate people <laughs> uh, to check out Smart Casual. So my plan for the future are to keep, keep, keep being a good comedian, get become a better comedian and, and try and do it for as long as I can before my... my my brain gives up on me and I can't do it anymore. That's that's my plan. And any acting parts that come along, I embrace. That's fantastic. So listeners, keep your eyes and ears out for Smart Casual, which is going to be Jeff Innocent's new podcast coming soon. And presumably that'll Thank be you. on Spotify and all that, that sort of thing. Of course, all platforms. Brilliant, brilliant. All, is that what you say? All platforms, isn't all it? Pla- all, platforms. So. all major platforms. <laughs> <laughs> Makes us <laughs> <sound> very uh, <laughs> knowledgeable. I understand you're going to be doing some courses soon as well. 
Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I, I run stand-up uh, comedy workshops for brand-new people and people that are new uh, and want to, want to, you know, go back to basics. And I haven't got the exact dates yet, but it will be at Up the Creek Comedy Club probably after the summer recess. September, I imagine, would be the first or around that time. So if people want to email me about that, that that's fine. Okay. Brilliant. And do you want to give them your email address? Yes, it's jeffinnocent at msn.com. Lovely. So give Jeff an email if you're interested in stand-up comedy, want to go back to stand-up comedy, or just want to improve where we are at the moment. That'd be brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank listeners. you. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. It's been an absolute well, uh, uh, pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me, and uh, uh, I hope it all goes well in the editing process. I hope I haven't been too boring talking about myself. That's exactly it's been a pleasure. Right. You're never boring. You're never boring. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you. This has been a podcast recording for a whole lot of comedy.